0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Advent, which we are still in for another hour or so, is a season not just of waiting, but of expectation, both in putting ourselves in the feet of the first century pre-Christians and remembering Jesus' first coming, and as we anticipate Jesus' second god is about to do something and i'm not sure if mary felt anticipation just before gabriel showed up to tell her the good news maybe she did there were certainly plenty of people both before and after her who would try to take up the mantle of christ of messiah the one to free israel from her enemies so at least some people in that time figured that their moment was the moment for god to act and they were the ones to do it and so they acted Now, long before then, David was one of those people who assumed exactly what God wanted and then tried to make it happen. In our reading from 2 Samuel this morning, he was finally living in the house he built for himself, and he was at rest from all the wars that he had waged in order to establish his rule over Israel, although there would be rebellions and wars to come. So David does what he assumes God wants. I live in this fancy home made of cedar, and God lives in a tent, so now I will build God his house. God, however, says, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Basically, God says, did I ever actually ask for a temple? This is sort of a a terrible moment when you buy someone a gift that you want, but they have no interest in it all. And they say, what would make you think I actually wanted this thing you've just given me? Hopefully none of, us suffer, none of us suffer that fate tomorrow morning. But this is God's response. I've never asked for a temple. At no point have I said, build me a temple. And David's like, now's the time to build you a temple. He suggests it because that's where a good, respectable, ancient Near Eastern God belongs. So you can go visit him on holidays, ask him for stuff, and then leave him to go about your daily life. That's how they are treated. That's what civilizations at this time do. And you can only imagine David's embarrassment that he hasn't built a good box for his God like all of his neighbors, but Yahweh is far more on the move, far less concerned about respectability than David is. But God, being merciful, is actually willing to accommodate our need for respectability. John Goldingay writes this, thus when God agrees to the building of a temple, it has a similar significance to God's agreeing that Israel should have kings. God doesn't really want it, but God will let us have our way. Indeed, in both cases, God goes much further than grudging agreement. The very commitment to the monarchy that God makes in this chapter shows how far God will go with us in connection with something that God doesn't really want. This is just as well because the pattern that runs through First and Second Samuel reappears in the church. The New Testament doesn't leave much room for the position of senior pastor or church buildings, our equivalents of king and temple, but the church soon invented them, and once again, God shrugs shoulders and cooperates. And thanks be to God, he has cooperated with that, as I am gainfully employed by a church in a building right now. (laughs) So as we read this morning, God gives his people both a temple and a king, but on his terms, in the way that he wants to give them. And to contrast, Mary is different than David, because she simply asks God for more information and receives what God is doing, rather than pushing for what she wants. She's perplexed, to be sure. She's not... She is a virgin still. She has no reason to believe or expect that she should be with child. So she asks questions. How can this be? I don't know what you mean. And then her response is reception. Again, Golden Gay says this. One of my colleagues likes to remind people that Jesus never talks about our establishing God's kingdom or furthering it or building it or extending it. In the Gospels, the only things we do to God's kingdom are wait for it, see it, enter it, seek it, receive it, inherit it. And declare that it has come think about that difference of david who is ready to establish the people of israel as the powerhouse in the ancient near east and mary who has no business expecting to be in charge of anything suddenly placed in this incredibly important position in the story of salvation history and even though it's certainly not her way it's not the way she might have chosen to go she says may it be to me as you've said a good reminder God's plan for the world is never just as we imagine it to be. God's plans are often messier and more complicated than we would like it. Because in the end, I think we want an incarnate-less God, one that stands afar and simply enacts change, lives in his temple, responds to our requests. When we do the requisite sacrifices, we want to have some sort of dance we have to do so we feel like we earned it. And then we want God to leave us alone. It requires less of us, and it would have required less of him, But messy is good. By way of illustration, it's what makes the original Star Wars movies so great. Stay with me for a moment. For enthusiasts, the thing you'll hear about the original trilogy, in comparison with other sci-fi movies of its time, is that those movies, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, all feel lived in. When you watch it, the ships are dirty and dusty, as if people actually lived in those places. The aesthetic for science fiction is often shiny clean things. Stainless steel that has no fingerprints, that is always sleek, that never looks as if anybody lived there. And the thing about stainless steel is that if it's shiny, it was either cleaned five minutes ago or there have never been any children near it at any point. (laughs) This is the point. God seems to have no interest in leaving the stainless steel immaculate. He doesn't really care about how shiny things look. He seems to accommodate our frailty and show up in unlikely and messy situations to enter the dust and muck of life. His plan seems to be about unwed mothers and blended families, the kind of things we make moving dramas out of, but we certainly wouldn't consider to be the vehicle for the plan of redemption, of octogenarian parents of nations in Abraham and Sarah. In Moses, choosing leaders with speech impediments to be his mouthpiece. In David, the youngest runt sibling that wasn't even considered to be the anointed king, God's path is just more circuitous than we'd like it to be, or at least it's not respectable in the way we'd like it to be. And that's where Mary comes in. As I've already mentioned, neither temple nor monarchy are God's idea, but he ends up using both to distinguish Israel's identity. And it's interesting because in Mary we have both. We have the annunciation that the king is coming, and for nine months, there is God's temple, the place where God will dwell. The first tabernacle is God being in the womb. And so Mary's another example of God choosing to cooperate with humanity, using us to accomplish his plans. But her response, again, the reason she is often referred to as the Blessed Virgin Mary, why she gets her own feast day, is that she hears this and receives it, and steps forward. Wright puts it this way, Mary is to that extent the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable any other way. And so God fulfills the promise made to Abraham to bless the whole world through Mary. Mary who's from this runt tribe of Benjamin who's not yet married, who is going to be pregnant and remember, her words are not passive. They are not, all right, God, whatever. They're not inaction. They're receptive. There's an active choice to move forward. Mary receives what God has in store for her and resolutely steps forward in the middle of everything. God is going to show up and set the world to rights. And we know that he even sets things right in a way that doesn't make sense. The cross looks like foolishness, but justice will come. God will save his people. The mighty oppressors will be taken down. The rich will be sent away empty. The hungry will receive good things. This is the Magnificat. This is how Mary responds in praise to this news. God has and continues to act in our world in very messy, unexpected, and non-respectable kinds of ways. So what then for us? How do we respond? I think there are times when you can feel your internal barometer going off, that there's change in the air pressure around you, that something is amiss or something is about to happen. And the first step is you listen before you act. You ask God first, unlike Nathan and David, who assume what God wants. David says, I'm going to build a temple. Nathan says, great idea. And then Nathan goes back to his room and God is like, nah, let's think about that for a moment. So you wait for God to show you how he wants his kingdom To come into this world not at the edge of your sword or your efforts but however he wants it to come and you take steps and frankly you just see what happens interestingly although i'm making fun of david and nathan all all morning david isn't chastised for his temple idea in fact david wants to build a temple and god is like fine david your son will build it the same way that israel wants kings and god says fine i'll give you kings God has chosen to work through messy humans, even humans as messy as David and even as messy as you and I. Things will change. God has promised the redemption and renewal of the whole world, starting even now as we await Jesus' second coming. But they'll change in ways we don't expect, and not by our effort, and not quite getting the results that we want, but better than we can do it and to a far better end. So may we respond to the gospel, to Christmas morning the way Mary does. With hope, with anticipation, with joy, with celebration that God is doing something and he's doing it differently than we would. We ask God that you'll act in your time and in your way. We, ask, we know that God has promised and is fulfilling a promise that he has made. May we be faithful to accept what it is and in return give all the glory to God. Now we'll hear from write one last time, and this time he speaks this on the Magnificat. It's the gospel before the gospel, a fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem and 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God, and it's all about revolution, and it's all because of Jesus, Jesus who's only just been conceived, not yet born, but who has made Elizabeth's baby leap for joy in her womb and has made Mary giddy with excitement and hope and triumph. May that be our response as well. Amen.